The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. The Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to even the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for uh, doctrine, for correction, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. I'm getting distracted by the flash. That the man of God may be thoroughly furnished, equipped for every good work. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we're thankful that you have provided this place for us to meet for the last year and a half. We're thankful for all of your many grace blessings, your logistical provisions for us. And, Father, we pray that as we go forward in our new place, that we may continue to rest and trust in your provision. Father, we pray for our study of your word this evening, that we might be able to concentrate and focus, to put aside the cares of the day, the concerns about tomorrow, and focus our attention and concentrate on the teaching of the Word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It never fails. Somebody comes to Bible class, hears a lesson, has a question, clarification. I'm not sure I got that. The next week, you're ready to clarify they're not here. Always happens. You can bet on it. That's okay. They'll get, I know they'll get the tape. We're in Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. And the question came up last time related to understanding the meaning of the, the concept of house in this passage. And that really is the interpretive crux of this passage, and perhaps I went through verses 5 and 6 a little too rapidly last time, so I want to go back and make sure we have uh, clarification. Let's just pick up the flow, the context. Therefore, it is a conclusion, but he is building the, the word therefore in the Greek focuses on what is coming, focuses on the application. Therefore, holy brethren, Partakers of the heavenly calling. So both of those terms emphasize for us 
that he's addressing believers. That is so important in these warning passages. Now, 3, 1 through 6 isn't considered a warning passage, but it comes up starting in verse, sec, uh, verse 7. This is uh, the, one of the major warning passages. And there are people who want to take these as indicating that the, either the, the readers aren't saved or they can lose their salvation. Of course, neither of those options are true. They are saved. It's clear to the writer that he's addressing them as believers, as justified believers. He says, therefore, holy brethren, holy emphasizing positional sanctification, partakers of the heavenly calling, that is, they are partners with Christ as every believer is, First of all, because of our position in Christ, at the instant of salvation, we're identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. And that is called the doctrine of positional truth, where that is our reality. It's different from our, it's our legal position, but it's different from our experiential position, because when we're sin, we're out of fellowship, we're not in, we're not experientially sanctified or set apart. The Holy Spirit's ministry is uh, quenched or shut down, and we have to confess our sins to get back in fellowship. And then we have the main command here, which is to consider, which means to give thoughtful attention to, to focus on, to concentrate on, to pay careful attention to. Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, that is, our body of beliefs, uh, Christ Jesus, because... He was faithful. That's a causal adverbial participle. It's not a relative who was faithful. It should be translated as a causal participle. We are to pay attention to him because he was faithful to him who appointed him. And that's the point of this whole section. Verses 1 through 6, don't lose sight of the ball. Verses 1 through 6, the point is Christ is faithful. It's a comparison of the faithfulness of Christ to the faithfulness of Moses. That's the point of comparison. And this establishes the basis for the warning that begins in verse 7. So we follow the author's flow. Verses 1 through 6 start the transition from the emphasis on Christ as the pioneer, the pathfinder, the precedent setter for our sanctification, our experiential sanctification, to the challenge that comes in the warning section. So we have, as I pointed out again and again, these sections in Hebrew that are more didactic. They're teaching various principles, and then there's a movement to an application or exhortation. So this section is going, in verses 1 through 6, compares Jesus with Moses, and it's laying the foundation for the warning. It lays the basis for the warning that begins with the therefore in verse 7. Three comparisons are developed in the coming chapters between Jesus and, and Moses or the Levitical system. The first is that the Old Covenant is surpassed by the New Covenant. The Old Covenant is surpassed by the New Covenant. It's replaced by the New Covenant. And the Old Covenant was never intended to be permanent. Second point of comparison is that uh, there's a limited access to God through a human mediator. The, uh, excuse me, the limited access to God through a human mediator that you had in the Mosaic system has been replaced by direct access to God 
for church-age believers. So you had limited access through a mediator in the Old Testament, through a priestly system. In the New Testament, you have direct access. So there's a comparison and contrast between the priesthood. So now we have every believer as a priest with immediate access to God. And then a third comparison that is made, which is where we're starting, is that Moses was a faithful servant in the house, whereas Christ is a faithful son over the house. And that's crucial for understanding the, what, where the writer is, is taking them. So we start off with the command to pay attention to Christ as the Apostle and high priest of our doctrine, because he was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses, just as it's a comparison. Christ is being compared and contrasted to Moses. This is not a, he's not, the writer is not uh, denigrating Moses. He's not putting Moses down or saying anything negative. He's pointing out the superiority of Jesus rather than the inferiority of Moses. It goes back to two key passages to understand, which we referenced last time, Deuteronomy 18.15, where there's a prophecy that God will raise up a prophet in the future that is like Moses. And that, that prophecy is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And several times in the Gospels, there's an allusion to Christ as the prophet. Numbers 12.3 we saw that whole chapter in Numbers emphasized Moses in the midst of that third rebellion, or third complaint, actually, in, in, that's recorded in, in Numbers, where Moses, I mean, excuse me, Miriam and uh, Aaron are leading a little mini uh, gripe session towards God, saying, why is Moses in charge and not us? And Moses is humble, and I pointed out that humility is authority orientation, and in that God's response to their complaint, he says, but Moses is a faithful servant in my house. So that becomes the Old Testament backdrop for the, the comparison. Then we come to Hebrews 3.3 3 for explanation. Why should we focus on Jesus in comparison to Moses? For this one, that is Jesus, this is explaining why we should focus on him, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. Now, if you read between the lines here, there's an allusion to Jesus' deity because he is the creator, going back to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. So Moses had glory. And in fact, in first century Judaism, and even later, but in the, the Judaism that developed after the Babylonian captivity, Moses is so revered and honored that he's just barely removed from deification in Judaism. They elevate Moses above everything. He's just short of, of, uh, just short of worship. He's even more significant in, Juda- in Judaism than the angels were. This is one reason why in the flow of thought here in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews starts off first by showing that Jesus is superior to the angels, and then he shows that now Jesus is also superior to Moses. Jesus is the Son of God, Son of David, Son of Man, and as such, he is worthy of all of our worship. And as full deity, being in the exact representation of God, Hebrews 1, 3, and 4, 
He is the Creator. So, as the Creator, He's worthy of more glory than Moses because the analogy is, as Creator, He built the house. Moses isn't the home builder. He's just in the house. And that's verse 4. Alright, verse 5. Verse 4 says, For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And then verse 5, And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which could be spoken afterward. Now this brings us to the interpretation of the meaning of the word house. And I didn't go through all of this last time. In fact, I was still... Even today, I sort of scratched my head. It's almost like every every person you study on this comes up with a different conclusion. But what I really love about commentaries is that if they can't figure it out, they don't address it. And so you, you just read through what they say, and then they skip over important things like who does the his refer to? To whom does the his refer? So Moses indeed was faithful in all his house. So if you break it, the term house down and go to the lexicons and do your word study... What you discover is that it has basically a literal meaning and then a more figurative meaning. The literal meanings relate to a house, a dwelling, and that can refer to somebody's home or it can refer to, for example, the temple or tabernacle, the dwelling of God. So we'll just bypass that because this isn't talking about a literal uh, dwelling place. Figuratively, it has four senses. The first is that it can refer to a dynasty. For example, the house of David would continue forever. That's using the term house as a dynasty. It emphasizes descendants, uh, a clan perhaps, or in some cases even a nation, but it has that idea of descendants. So it's used to refer to the, a dynasty, a clan, uh, or sometimes a nation. Uh, house possibly, as you read through this, because God is, back in verse 4, the house is built by God. Well, maybe house just describes all of creation. So that's an interpretive possibility that house describes all of the human race. Third possibility, I don't think that's what it is and because of what is said in verse 6. Christ as a son over his own house. That is really the key phrase. Christ is a son over his own house, whose house we are. You have to go to verse 6 to get the concept down. And so we'll eliminate a couple of other options here before we get there. So it doesn't refer to the human race. Third possibility, that house refers to all of the saved without dispensational distinction. That means it refers to all believers, Old Testament, New Testament, Israel, Gentile, Old Testament, New Testament, church age believers. House is just a term used in the analogy to describe, as it were, in a generic sense, the household of God, all believers. Thus, if we take it that way, which is how, um, it's obvious this is how the some of the translations take it because they capitalize the word his. So house then, Moses would be faithful in God's household. So they would translate this, that Moses was faithful in his house, being God's house. So this is just a, a universal house. Uh, and this has some support because in Numbers 12.7, God says, Moses is faithful in all 
my house. So that seems to be a point of support for that particular position. But my house there can be and should be understood to be Israel in that Old Testament context. Which leads us to the fourth position, that house really refers to dispensationally distinct groups. Dispensationally distinct groups. Thus, the his, the third person singular pronoun here, the his should be lowercase referring to the individual. Now, if you look at some Bibles and some translations, the move today has been to, uh, in, in style books, is to never capitalize the H in, 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 a, in a pronoun when it refers to God, whether it's his or he. And you get into more modern translations, and they don't, make the, they don't capitalize, so it really gets confusing. Especially, I was looking at one commentary today. I was looking at Arnold Fruchtenbaum's new commentary on Hebrews, and he do, it's, it's all lowercase. And he never identifies who the he is. So you're really left confused because you, you don't get there. But if it's lowercase his, then it's referring to Moses being faithful in his house. That is his sphere of responsibility. And that's what I'm going to end up with as a definition. His house refers to a sphere of responsibility. So it is this fourth option of dispensationally distinct groups. Moses is faithful in his house which is the house of Israel. He's part of the house of Israel. The text says he is in the house. In contrast, when we look at verse 6, it says Christ is a son over the house. The fact that he is over indicates his position of ultimate authority because Jesus is the head of the church. He is the, uh, the head, the authority over the church. So when we read in verse 6, But Christ is a son over his own house, whose house we are. That we would include the readers and the writer, church-age believers. Well, I didn't know I was picking up that animated movement there when I picked up those diagrams, but uh, just ignore that. I tried to create this slide to indicate the contrast between the two. On the left, you see the house of Israel and the preposition in. Moses is in the house. He's part of Israel. Even though he's in an authoritative position and he is a leader, he is not the head of the house. Whereas Christ is over the house and inside the house you have church-age believers. And these are two distinct Groups as presented in the scripture. And it's clear that this imagery of a house is used with dispensational, uh, as a dispensationally distinct terms. For example, the church is referred to as a household in Ephesians 2.19. God is building a house in reference to the church in 1 Peter 2.5. And this would be the, um, the house. So there are two distinct groups. Now, in conclusion, let's just try to do a comparison and contrast because that's what the writer's doing. He's, he's comparing and contrasting the faithfulness of Moses with the faithfulness of Jesus. And it's going to be out of this that he challenges us and challenges the readers and just hits them right between the eyes. And if you don't understand the Old Testament dynamics here, 
then you won't get the point. Moses is described in the scriptures as an apostle. I should have kept that as a lowercase apostle. A sent one. He is sent by God in Exodus 3, 1 through 6. And he's described as a prophet in Deuteronomy 18, 15. This is why in no other place do you have Jesus described as an apostle than here. Because the writer is drawing these comparisons. So he refers to Jesus as the apostle because he is sent from God. As I pointed out last week, that when you see that word apostle applied to somebody, you have to ask who, the basic meaning of an apostle is a commissioned one, somebody who's sent on a mission, assigned a task, sent as an envoy, sent as an ambassador. Who sends them and why are they sent? And to whom are they being sent? Now, the twelve that we refer to, the eleven disciples plus Paul, are commissioned by Jesus directly to take the gospel to the world. That makes them one of the apostles, capital A. Jesus is sent by God. That makes him an apostle sent by God, commissioned by God, but not an apostle like the eleven or twelve. You have missionaries that are sent out or commissioned by local churches, and their apostles lowercase. Not the gift of apostle, not the office of an apostle, just a sent one. In that same sense, Moses is sent by God in the same way that Jesus is sent by God. And in John 3.34, you have the, the verb apostello, which is where we get the noun apostle, referring to Jesus. It's used several other times in reference to Jesus being sent from God, John 3.34. In Matthew 21.11... John 4.19, Acts 3.22, and Acts 7.37, the writer of Scripture makes it clear that Jesus is the expected prophet, capital P, in fulfillment of the Deuteronomy uh, prophecy that there will be another prophet like Moses. So Moses and Jesus are both sent by God, and they both fulfill the role of prophet. Jesus, of course, is the ultimate. Moses is said to be faithful in the house, which is Israel, but Jesus is faithful over the house, which is the church. So this makes him superior. He is superior to Moses because he is a prophet, the fulfillment or the antitype of Moses' type as a prophet, and Jesus is faithful over the house. Third, Moses failed at times. He wasn't always faithful. Uh, specifically, we remember the second time that he was told or that he was going to get water out of the rock, but he was told to speak to the rock instead of hitting it, and he got mad and he hit it. He was mad at Israel, so he hit the rock. And for that, he was not allowed to enter into the land. But Jesus never failed. He was always faithful. So he is superior to Moses in his faithfulness. Moses had glory... But as a therapone, a therapone, this is the root word from which we get the word therapy or therapua, which means to heal, because healers were viewed as, as servants, those who wanted to help and serve people in, in times of sickness. So the therapone servant is different from a doulos servant. The doulos servant is a slave. A slave serves or helps because he has to. But the therapone servant is a higher order of service. He serves because he wants to. It's voluntary. Jesus, on the other hand, 
doesn't have glory as a theropon, as a servant. His glory is related to his sonship and that he is the builder of the house. Once again, he is superior to Moses because he has a superior glory. What happened to Moses was that the Jews rebelled against him at Kadesh Barnea, and as a result, they lost their inheritance. And the warning that's coming up in verse 7 is directly related to that, and they are warned that they, if they continue in their their move towards falling away, as mentioned back in chapter 2, verse 1, if they drift away, then they too risk losing their inheritance. Not their justification, but their inheritance if they rebel. So everything is driving towards this last point that just as the Old Testament Jews of the Exodus generation were justified, but they lost, they jeopardized, they failed to be able to enter into the promised land, we too, as church-age believers, can be justified, but if we don't stick with it and continue to grow as believers, then what we risk is our inheritance blessings that will be distributed in the Millennial Kingdom. So this chart sets up the contrast between Moses and Jesus, demonstrating they're both faithful, but Jesus is superior. He's superior as apostle and prophet. Now, you go back to verse 1 of chapter 3, it also emphasizes that he's a high priest. And that's developed after this section. The next chapters, chapter five, chapters 5 and 6, focus on the superiority of Christ's priesthood. But the first uh, major part of chapter 3 really develops the comparison with Moses that Jesus is superior as an apostle and prophet. He's superior in his faithfulness. He never failed. His glory is superior. And therefore, the argument that is being presented here is that if the Jews from the Old Testament lost their inheritance blessing to enter the land because they disobeyed Moses... And if Jesus is greater than Moses, how much more certain you're going to be that you're going to lose your inheritance if you're not faithful to to Jesus. That's the point. If they lost inheritance privileges because they disobeyed Moses, who is inferior to Jesus, how much more certain we can be that we will lose inheritance blessing if we're disobedient to Jesus and rebel against Him and not stick with it through spiritual maturity. So that brings us up to Hebrews 3, verse 7. Therefore, drawing a conclusion, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. Now, I want to stop here just a minute. Notice the writer's view of the inspiration of Scripture. It just tends to slip right by you, but he doesn't say as the writer of the psalm says, or as David says, he says, as the Holy Spirit says, recognizing that the ultimate author of Scripture is not the human author, but the divine author. First Peter 1, 20 and 21, that uh, no Scripture is subject to one's own private interpretation, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who is the ultimate source of revelation and inspiration of Scripture. So the writer of Hebrews again and again 
quotes from the Old Testament, but he doesn't emphasize the human author. In fact, most of the time he emphasizes the divine author. It is God the Holy Spirit who is speaking here. So it is a reference from verses 7 through 11. is a direct quote from the Septuagint translation of Psalm 95. So if we're going to understand what's going on here, we better go back to Psalm 95. So turn with me to Psalm 95. Now, don't lose sight of what's happening here as a background. The writer is saying that Jesus is more faithful than Moses, thus he's superior to Moses. Therefore, Jesus is due greater obedience, and we must be more consistent in our obedience than the Jews of the Exodus generation were. And that's the thrust of Psalm 95. Now, let's get a little background on Psalm 95. Psalm 95 is one of several psalms that are called enthronement psalms. They're called enthronement psalms because they focus on the enthronement, the future enthronement of the future king, the Davidic king, the greater son of David that will rule and reign over the nation, the messianic king. And so these psalms are collected together in the... the, in the Psalms, from Psalm 93 through Psalm 100. And so the focus of all of these Psalms is on the coming of the promised son of David who will rule on the throne of David forever and ever. And so Psalm 95 is essentially a call to worship, a call to worship God because he has provided the messianic ruler. Now, in Psalm 95, this didn't happen. Historically, it was a future-oriented psalm. It looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. It's anticipating the coming of the Messiah. So there is a call to worship in verse 1. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving and shout joyfully to Him with psalms. For the Lord, He is the great God and the great king above all gods. Notice the emphasis on the uniqueness of God and on his, his being the creator. The, the, in his hands are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. So as the psalmist is focusing and concentrating on God as a creator... He issues this call to come to worship. And then in the middle of this, he breaks with a warning. And that warning is what is quoted in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. And it's the same uh, enumeration here in Psalm 95, verses uh, 7, or actually 6 through 11. Uh, 6... um, or excuse me, 7b, today if you will hear his voice. So the psalmist is, is writing, we're not sure, we don't know who wrote it or when it was written, but it was probably written during the uh, early monarchy. It may be a psalm of David, we don't know. Uh, I'm not going to go out of limb and say, more than I'm going to say who wrote Hebrews. But the psalmist writes and he says, today, now he's already aware of the Davidic covenant, he's aware of the promises of God, but he's going to make application to his present readers. And he's saying, today, 
If you will hear His voice, if you will listen to Him, it's what James emphasizes in terms of, of don't just be a hearer of the Word, but a doer or a plier also. He's saying the same thing. And the writer of Hebrews then modernizes it and applies it in the context of Hebrews 3, meaning today at the time that he wrote in the first century. And in the same way, we can take this and apply it today in terms of application. Today, this day, are you willing to listen to the voice of God? Now, let's stop a minute. Are you today, if you will hear his voice? What does that remind you of? Well, it ought to remind you of what's, what was taking place in the first couple of verses of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says that, and this, uh, that God spoke in times past to the prophets in various ways and various means, but in these last days He has spoken by God. So the backdrop to a lot that is being said in, in Hebrews is that God has revealed Himself. He has revealed to us, and that revelation comes with an implicit mandate to listen and respond and obey. And so that becomes the background for the quotation from Psalm 37. Now, the other thing that we note in Hebrews is that Psalm 37 uh, seven isn't quoted just one time. This is the key thought in this whole section. It's quoted again in verse 15, Hebrews 3.15, and again in Hebrews 4.7. This is the running theme. Today, if you will listen, today, if you will hear His voice, don't harden your hearts. Today, it, 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 the writer of Hebrews is grabbing these people and saying, don't take your relationship to God through Jesus Christ lightly. Do not take your spiritual life lightly. Do not yield to antinomianism. Do not yield to the uh, pressure to just give it up because you're under external adversity and persecution, because it's getting tough. Hang in there. Stay with it because if you give it up, there are a thing, there are blessings, there are responsibilities, there are future realities that you will jeopardize if you give it up. And this is the same idea that the psalmist has in Psalm 95. Now, let me back up just a second. What did I just say? Psalm 93 is an enthronement psalm. It's future-oriented. What's future-oriented? It's oriented to the coming of the Messiah. When's the Messiah going to come? When the Messiah comes, He's going to do what? He's going to establish the kingdom. So you see, the writer of Psalm 93 takes, takes us from this call to worship in the first six verses to a challenge to be ready for the coming of the Messiah to establish His kingdom. When the writer of the Hebrews wants to make this same point to church-age believers, Jewish believers who are about to give it all up and drift away from the truth, he takes this same psalm and applies it but the psalm still is being related to that future kingdom of the Messiah that we need to be prepared. So there's a warning based on the historical event at Kadesh Barnea. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at the rebellion. And that almost becomes a technical term for what happened at Kadesh. The rebellion is what it's referred to in, in Jewish, or variations of that in Jewish literature. Do not harden your, your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial 
in the wilderness. Now, it's funny, you know, I was doing some research on this today, and how many, it was amazing how many commentaries said that this related to the, the, the first crisis at Massa and Meribah, which occurred as they're coming out of Egypt and on their way to Sinai, and that was the first time they uh, complained about no water in the wilderness, and then uh, Jesus spoke to the, wa- to the rock and fresh water came out. And so Meribah and uh, Massa are basically Hebrew words that mean strife and contention and griping and grumbling. And people go there or they go to the second incident in Numbers chapter 20 when Moses does it. But when Moses does the same thing or they complain about water again and this time he hits the rock. And that's in Numbers 20. But the point here is that the rebellion, the crisis point, and it never, it doesn't identify the situation specifically, but it makes it very clear that it's the rebellion, verse 8, the day of trial in the wilderness when your fathers tested me, and the result of this test is then given in verse 11, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Now when did that happen? Well, it didn't happen at Meribah and Massa at Rephidim back in in Exodus chapter 17. It doesn't happen in Numbers chapter 20. It happened in Numbers 14 and 15 at Kadesh Barnea. So in order to get the backdrop to understand the warning and why it is so serious, let's go back and review what took place at Kadesh Barnea in Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13. Now remember the point. I don't want you to lose sight of this. The writer of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is more faithful than Moses. The implication is, if, you're, if, if the Old Testament Exodus generation was disobedient to Moses, and look at what happened to them, finally, how much more serious it is for us as church-age believers if we don't stick with the Lord Jesus Christ and continue our growth. So in Numbers 13, we, are, we find ourselves with the Jews as they come to Kadesh Barnea, which is located on the extreme southern border of the land of Israel, the northern part of, of Sinai Peninsula, as they're about to enter into the Promised Land. Uh, I, just a year and uh, uh, two weeks earlier, there had been the exodus from Egypt. And God brought them out of, Je- out of Egypt with a strong hand. He separated the waters of the Red Sea. They walked across in dry land. God then used the waters to completely destroy the armies of Pharaoh. He brought them through the wilderness. He provided for them. He brought them fresh water uh, despite their grumbling at Massa and, and uh, Meribah. He also uh, gave them victory over the uh, Amalekites. I mean, these were tremendous battles. They were, in scale, they were as large as any modern battle. Uh, Tens of thousands of soldiers fighting, and they defeated the Amalekites, and then they went on to Sinai. Once they arrived at Sinai, God appeared to them began to give them the law verbally. The people were scared to death. They couldn't handle hearing the voice of God. So they said, Moses, you go up and intercede for us. So Moses went up on the mountain, received the the Mosaic law, and that's when they had the golden calf incident. Again, you see a pattern here of rebellion, 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 rebellion. Moses came down. There is the uh, punishment of those who, who wanted the golden calf. And then... 
after that punishment is over with, Moses gives them the Mosaic Law, and they begin to work on constructing the tabernacle and all the furniture and the articles of clothing for the priests and the high priests. All of this took a year for them to prepare before they could leave Sinai to go to the Promised Land. And it is a picture of how God was sanctifying the nation before they could enter into the, to the land. Now, their positional sanctifica- sanctification as a nation goes back to the Abrahamic covenant. But in once they receive the Mosaic Law, the Mosaic Law gives all the mandates for cleansing, which relate to experiential sanctification. Now... They keep failing, though. There's just, in fact, according to our passage here in Numbers chapter 14, verse 22, there were ten specific incidences of rebellion in the wilderness. And the last and most egregious of the bunch occur here in chapter 13. So they finally arrive after 11 days of travel from Mount Sinai. They arrive at Kadesh Barnea. And the Lord gives Moses instructions, Numbers 13, verse 1. Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. Now here's the point. God promises and promised to Abraham that he was going to give him the land. That is positional truth. That is comparable to what happens in the believer's life at the instant of salvation. You are positionally blessed with all Uh, the heavenly blessings. It's ours. Not experientially yet, but it's legally ours. We own all those blessings. The issue is, are we going to move that from potential to actual by advancing experientially in the Christian life? Are those going to be blessings that never get distributed and end up being destroyed eventually in the lake of fire? We've studied that in the past. The analogy here is that the Jews are given the land positionally, but they have to go in experientially and take the land. Just as we are given, uh, we are positionally sanctified at the instant of salvation, nevertheless, we still have to grow experientially and experientially sanctify our thinking and learn doctrine and renew our thinking, renovate our thinking so that we think biblically instead of as the world thinks. That's the point of analogy. Well, what happens back then is typical of what happens now. Moses is told to send men to spy out the land. In other words, God isn't just going to give it to them. They have to follow specific procedures in order to take control of the land. And that doesn't happen, of course, because of the failure here until the book of Joshua. But what are God's instructions? Pay attention to the Word. This is crucial. The issue here, fundamentally, though it's a lack of faith, fundamentally it's a failure to interpret God's command. God is not commanding them to go into the land, or commanding these spies to go into the land to see if they can take the land. He's sending the spies in there just to gather information. He's already promised them the land. He said, this is the land I am giving you. And see, Christians too often make the same, have the same failure that the Jews of the Exodus generation had. We misinterpret God's mandates, and we really don't think God can give us victory in our Christian life, and so we don't trust Him. 
And what God is saying is, I've already given it to you. I have already given you and blessed you with all the heavenly blessings. That's your reality. Live in light of it. But no, he said, nah, I'm not sure we can do this. It just seems so difficult. Look at all my circumstances. Look at my background. Look at what my parents did to me. And whatever it is, I can't quite manage to get over this problem of, of uh, uh, sin in my life or whatever the, the circumstance may be. But God's provided us everything we need in terms of, and, and, and especially confession, so that we can recover from sin. So back to the Jews, they get identify uh, spies, select a spy from each of the twelve tribes, and they send these twelve spies into the land. And Moses sent them, skip down to verse 17, past the list, sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up this way into the south, go into the Negev, and then go up to the mountains, that is the hill country of Judah, and see what the land is like. Notice, he doesn't say, see if you can defeat them. He says, see what the land is like. Whether the land they dwell in is good or bad. Or whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds. How are we going to take it? How, what's, our, what are our, our, what's our strategy going to be? Whether the land is rich or, or poor. And whether they're forced there or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Bring back some things that you find there which will encourage everybody. So they went up and they spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin, that's in the south, as far as Rehob, near the entrance of Hamath, which is up in the north. And they went up through the south, verse 22, and they came to Hebron. Ahiman, Seshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak. These were the giants in the land. Now, if you've got a New American Standard NIV... It identifies these uh, later on as the Nephilim. Now, when you hear the word Nephilim, the, the, the thing that comes into your mind mostly is the product of the human plus angel or demon alliance back in Genesis chapter 6. But the root meaning of the word Nephilim really has the idea of a monster or perhaps a fierce warrior. And so this is a generic term that was that was applied to the descendants of, of that, uh, that half-breed hybrid race back in Genesis chapter 6, but it also can be applied to, to these giants. It may not even mean giant. It may have more the idea of just a, a fierce warrior or a monster or something of that type. There's some debate in the, in the uh, etymological literature over the meaning of the word, but, the, I, but they're not the same. Okay, there's not a relationship between the two other than the, the, the descriptive uh, meaning of the name. So these are the descendants of Anak. And they live down in the southern part of Judah in the center, center of the area in Hebron. They're going to be referred to again in Joshua 15:14 because after this failure, it's going to be 40 years, but Caleb's eventually going to get to go in the land and he gets their city. And so he has to go and defeat them, and he does. And they have a few descendants who go, and they live in Philistia in the cities of Gaza, Ashdod, and Gath. And so you have this giant, uh, descendants of these giants end up in a little town called Gath, and that's where Goliath's from. So that just gives you uh, Goliath's family tree. So they, have, they go in, and they see these descendants of Anak. So there's these giants in the land. 
Then they came to the valley of Eshcol, and they got some uh, uh, huge cluster of grapes there, and they spend 40 days spying out the land. But then they come back, and they give a report in verse 26. And they told him in verse 27, We went to the land where you sent us. It's truly a land with milk and honey. Uh, this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. These are powerful people. The cities are fortified and very large. So you've got a powerful people, numerous people, and they've got fortified cities. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and they're known as a fierce, warlike people. They'd already defeated them once, coming out of Egypt a year earlier. Now, we're also the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites. In other words, ten of, the, ten of the spies come back, and they're scared to death. And then Caleb quieted the people. They're about to revolt. And he said, let's go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. Ten spies thought that their mission was to find out if they could take the land. But two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, realized their mission wasn't to see if they could take the land. They properly interpreted the, com- the command, the Word of God, and they recognized they were just there to see how they were going to take the land and to give a report of the land to the people. So the people then completely fail spiritually, and this is the tenth of their various rebellions against God. Verse 1 of chapter 14, So all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation uh, complains against them. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Let's go back. We were safe and secure there. See, they have no capacity for freedom coming out of slavery. All they want is security. They don't want responsibility. And so they want somebody to take care of them. And they want Moses to just take them back. And then they get so angry that they start to stone Caleb and Joshua and Moses and Aaron. And at this point, the Lord steps in and he's ready to just wipe everybody out and start over. And Moses intercedes with them. And in his intercession, he, functioning as a go-between with the people, calls upon the Lord to pardon or to... Forgive them of their sin. Down in verse 19. Pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. So the people are forgiven. They don't lose their salvation. They don't lose their position in the Abrahamic covenant. They, what they, they lose is their privilege. God doesn't take away their position, but He is going to bring judgment on them because of their failure. And in verse 20, the Lord says, I have pardoned or I have forgiven according to your word, but truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test now these ten times. So it's like they've reached a point of no return. In other words, there's still forgiveness, there's still grace, there's still restoration to fellowship, but there's a point in your spiritual life when you're going to go past a point of no return, and at that point you're going to start forfeiting and jeopardizing blessings in time and blessings in eternity. And that's what happened to this generation. They hit that point of no return, they're still forgiven, they're still saved, but they're not going to get into the land. Same thing happened to Moses. When Moses got mad and struck the rock instead of uh, speaking to it, 
God lowered the boom on him and said, okay, you're going to see the land, but you're not going to enter into the land. There is, when, at, at a certain point, because of ongoing sin and carnality in the life, God, through, because in discipline, is going to take away blessings that he has planned to give us, but because of our failures and because of sin, it's jeopardized and it's taken away. Just like what happens here. This is the background. This is why the writer of Hebrews is going to issue this tremendous warning in Hebrews 3, 7 and following. Don't fall into the same trap they did when they disobeyed Moses. They finally reached a point where they lost the land and they all had to wander in the wilderness and go through a second class life. And miss out on all those tremendous blessings of the land and all the opportunities that God would have given them because they continue to rebel against Him. The result, verse 23, They certainly shall not see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him and has followed me fully, I will bring in the land where he and his descendants shall inherit it. So there is a blessing for those who are obedient and those who endure. And this is what happens in, in the book of Joshua. Joshua is the picture of, this is the, the, the rest of Numbers is the picture of the believer who fails. Joshua is the picture of the believer who, in experiential sanctification, trusts God and goes forward. And you see, it, it's magnificent in the book of Joshua when you come to Joshua chapter 5 at Gilgal, there is this ceremony where all the adult males in Israel are circumcised because none were circumcised during the wilderness wanderings. Circumcision is the sign not of the Mosaic Covenant, but of the Abrahamic Covenant. And so it is a picture of their positional reality in relation to the Abrahamic Covenant. That has to happen to sanctify them positionally before they can go into the land. And, and the ne- next thing that happens after, after the circumcision at Gilgal is they go into the land and they start defeating the Canaanites at, uh, at uh, Jericho. So it is a perfect picture and analogy of what happens in the Christian life. That positionally we're identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. That positionally sanctifies us. But then there has to be experiential sanctification and doing the battles of the spiritual life. We're at war, not with, the, uh, with visible powers, but invisible powers. We are supposed to take every thought captive for Christ. This is a battle that we're in in the spiritual life. That, that spiritual life is consistently uh, described in military metaphor. And the battle is sanctification. And so when we sin, which is what happened when, when you get into Joshua's uh, seven, you have the sin of Achan, who didn't, uh, when they destroyed Jericho, rather than obeying the Lord and, and uh, destroying everything or giving the valuables all to the temple, he hoarded some of the gold and the silver and hid it in his tent, and then God disciplined the nation and it, because it harbored sin. And so there had to be this sanctification. In fact, God says to, to Israel in ch- chapter 7, sanctify yourselves first, and then we'll identify the sinner, and he had to be uh, removed under the, under the sin unto death as a picture of the, of the removal of sin in the life before Israel could go on and have 
and have victory. So all of this is a tremendous analogy of what takes place in the individual spiritual life of the believer. And so the writer of Hebrews picks up on all of these these historical events in the life of Israel, and he brings them into application. Hebrews 3.7, Today, if you will hear his voice, don't waste time, don't think that you can be complacent, don't think that you can sit back on past victories. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of the trial of wilderness. So the warning is that if the Old Testament Jews lost their privilege because they rebelled against Moses, what do you think will happen to church-age believers if we're not obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ? We will forfeit eternal blessings and privilege in the Millennial Kingdom. We'll bow our heads and close our eyes and have our last closing prayer at White Oak Baptist Church. Father, thank you for Again, for your word, for its clarification, for the fact that your revelation includes for us an obligation to obedience. And that there is a serious warning here that if we fail to take this seriously, if we fail to persevere in the Christian life, that there are indeed consequences. There is forgiveness, there is ongoing fellowship, but there are consequences in terms of lost privilege, lost blessing and lost opportunity. Father, challenge us with what we study. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.